welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome back to the Proper Mental Podcast. It's episode 62, and my guest this week is James Withy, who is an author, an editor, and a public speaker. So James writes about his own lived experience with mental health and mental illness. He writes about things like depression and anxiety, PTSD and anorexia. And he also writes about how he deals with these things and how he manages these things. And his books are often a a collection of Small, I suppose, stories about how these things affect him in his day-to-day life, but also what he does about these things. And I've read his most recent book, which is called How to Tell Anxiety to Sod Off, and it's 40 ideas about doing just that, really. And I thought it was brilliant. The way that James looks at these things, as well as being really, really funny, and humour in the mental health conversation is something that we talk about quite a lot in this episode, because it features quite heavily in, in James's writing. But the things that he, the ways he looks at it and the ideas that he has about managing anxiety in this book and uh, depression in his other book, I found them really, really fascinating. And I think culturally, it's really easy for us. You see a lot of people on social media anyway to say like, oh, feel anxious, just do some yoga. And then anyone who's experienced anxiety will tell you that it's not that simple. And James, all his ideas, they're very different to that. You know, he's got a really good way of of looking at it. And if that's a bit rambly and doesn't make sense, we chat about that in the episode. So I, he'll clear it all up for you in his own words. Um, but I really liked his book is what I'm trying to say. And uh, yeah, we chat about that. We talk about a project that he's the founder of, which is called The Recovery Letters. And The Recovery Letters is a project that publishes letters from people recovering from depression, addressed to people experiencing it. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And we chat about that. We chat about where the idea came to him from. He was actually in a psychiatric hospital at the time and he wanted to hear about other people's recovery stories and there wasn't anything. So he kind of created that. And that's a lovely part of the conversation. We talk about his life. We talk about his experiences. We talk about writing and we talk about the mental health conversation. And it's just a really lovely chat. It was one of those conversations where I was just enjoying myself so much And I kind of looked at the clock and I couldn't believe how much time had passed so quickly. Yeah, it was lovely. I could have talked to James all day. He's a lovely, lovely man. If you'd like to know more about him, you can go to www.jameswithy.co.uk or he is at James W. Withy on social media. You can also go to therecoveryletters.com. His new book that we talk about in this episode is How to Tell Anxiety to Sod Off. That's out now and you can get that and his other books in all your favourite bookshop type places, but uh, shop local, innit, wherever possible. If you want to catch up with me, propermentalpodcast.com or at propermentalpodcast, I try and be really accessible. So if you want to send me an email and tell you how much you love my show or recommend a guest or have a chat about anything, then I'd love to hear from you. I do try and get back to everyone. Uh, if you'd like to support me financially, you can buy me a coffee. It's only a couple of quid. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash propermental. I've not had a brew off anyone for ages. So yeah, hook me up man 
Um, what else? Just the usual review, please. Review, review, review. Spotify, Apple, all that stuff. Again, it's been a little while and I'd really like a nice review. So yeah, if you could help me out, that'd be great. Other than that, that's everything you need from me. This is episode 62 of the Proper Mental Podcast with James Withy. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. My guest this week is James Withy. How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm really well. Thank you oh. for having me. This is lovely. Oh, mate, pleasure's all mine. Thank you very much for joining me. I was thinking this morning, like when we booked this, it was kind of towards the end of last year and it seemed so far away, did it, the date? And I, it's like here already. It seems to have gone really, really quick. Time does do that, doesn't it? It's frightening, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really is. And then I was, I, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, oh, doesn't time go fast? And then I was laughing because that's kind of what old people say <laughs> and, and, and I, I would have, when I was younger and someone who's my age now you know I'm 40 now and someone would have said to me Does, time goes quick as you get older and I would have thought like oh, shut up granddad <laughs> and now I, I say it all the time it's true I'm um, I'm 50 this year so yeah it's 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 going even faster so yeah right faster and faster <laughs> Well, I was wondering today, mate, I thought a really good place for us to start would be right at the beginning. Mm. And that's because you mentioned in your book that your first experiences with um, mental ill health were as, um, started as young as, as primary school. Is that right, mate? Would that have been sort of five or six, something like that, James? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I can, so my, my, my dad died when I was five. So, you know, it didn't, my childhood didn't get off to a great start. Um, but I, so yeah, I can, I can remember really, really, you know, far back around that, around that age and, 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 and just knowing, just knowing that I felt sad a lot of the time. And, you know, I think some of that obviously was to do with my dad dying, but, um, but actually I had a general sense of kind of malaise or just, just unhappiness that was just always there. And I could never figure out what it was. So sometimes I thought, you know, it was because I was lonely or, you know, I didn't really know what that feeling of sadness was. And, you know, in that age, you just don't, you just sort of feel sad and that's it. And you have no context for that. So yeah, I can remember all the way back feeling, having that feeling, but obviously not being able to put a label on it and not understanding it. But just feeling very down, very low. I was very, I was a very anxious kid. So you know, I was very worried about school, and you know, so I was, I was in school in you know the seventies sort of and then into the into the eighties, and you know, things were things were very different. But I remember being very anxious about playing sport, for example. I was always rubbish at playing football, and you know, maths. I was already terrible at maths. So you know, we used to have um, times table exams where you know they would have a big scoreboard and it would put your name on you know where you are on the time step. I mean all fairly humiliating stuff that wouldn't happen <laughs> these days but you know back then it certainly did so I was I was a really anxious kid um but also sad and I you know I, now I can sort of see how mental health and mental illness runs in my family you know I can trace it back you know really 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 clearly um but then you're just sort of stuck with this feeling that you don't understand but it's just really horrible yeah, sure. Was there kind of like, I suppose, as you get older and you start to do, you know, a bit of a bit of work on these things and get more of an understanding of, of yourself 
Um, was there kind of like a bit of a, a light bulb moment when you kind of go, ah, that's what I was experiencing as a I, child? Well, I think I think there was, but but to be, if I'm really honest, really really late on, you know, I because I think I think what for me what I was aware of the, the accumulation of stigma and shame around mental health is so pervasive and so enormous that I don't think until so probably about ten years ago when I had sort of inverted commas and a huge breakdown, a massive, massive, massive breakdown, for want of a better word, um, that I started to see myself as somebody with a mental illness or somebody with mental health problems. And, and, and it, it seems extraordinary now, you know, that I, that I didn't sort of see myself like that, you know, because I had suicide attempts and I had anorexia and I had all these problems, um, you know, huge anxiety, you know, really low periods. Um, I think partly because, you know, we just didn't talk about this stuff. We didn't talk about it. And all of my images of mental illness was, you know, you know, predominantly my aunt who was, who was incredibly unwell and was in psychiatric hospitals a lot. Um, or, you know, just, I guess, because you don't want to be that person because no one's talking about that and no one's saying that that's okay, then, you don't want to be that so you enter a state of denial you know which lasted for a long 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 time so yeah it wasn't really until you know probably yeah a good 10 years ago that I kind of went oh okay I mean I knew I'd been unwell but I didn't sort of put a label on myself which you know and, it, and it's difficult this label thing but actually labels for me were really helpful because it puts a boundary round and a name for something that I've been experiencing for so long, but didn't really understand what it was. So, but it, you know, it's like any kind of taboo subject. So for me, in terms, you know, it's a bit like being gay. You, you, you know, I, I came out when I was eighteen, but you know, I spent many, many years, you know, not wanting to be, not wanting to be gay because it wasn't talked about. I lived in a, I lived in you know, southern Dorset. You know, there's not a big gay community there. You know, and so because you don't see it, it's not talked about, then you push it down and you push it down and you feel other and you feel shamed and you feel like, well, I don't want to be that. So let's, uh, you know, you go into sort of state of denial about stuff. Yeah, so sure. a, a similar thing happened with my mental health. So yeah, I, I, it really was only 10 years ago that I, that I sort of said, yeah, okay, I, I'm, uh, I identify somebody with a mental illness and have mental health problems. Yeah, I identified that with Lowe's. I've very, very similar experience. And there's times now, uh, particularly through my teenage years, when I kind of look back on, and now it just makes so much sense. And I try yeah. and put myself in the mindset of me at that time. And I knew something wasn't right. And I couldn't quite decide whether it was just like, you know, the human condition and everybody was like it, mm. or that I was so weird and so broken. It's like, I can't tell anyone because... I'll be ostracized, you know, I'll be bullied at school, but I'll get sent away, you know, all these sorts of things that you, you think yeah. of. So you kind of, it's so strange, isn't it? How you're able to, we're able to normalize these things. So we're living in a world where we're pretending everything's okay. When internally, everything's really, really not. And we can normalize it to the point where that's not even shocking to ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> it just, it just is right. <laughs> isn't, isn't that extraordinary? And it, it's extraordinary and it's horrendous, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's both of those things. And, and I think, you know, it sounds like for both of us, you know, you kind of, 
that that sort of denial period, that sort of wanting to move away and not want to be bullied and not wanting to be ostracised is really damaging in itself. So you've got the mental health stuff that you're managing, and then you're also managing the effects of stigma and shame and, and, and feeling other. And that is trauma within itself. So you've got this sort of double layer stuff which is, you know, massively, massively harmful, really, really harmful. And, and it's sort of, in some ways, a sort of separate healing process. So you've got the mental health stuff, but then you've also got to process this stuff around, well, actually, I didn't, I mean, partly I didn't get any help because there wasn't any, any help. <laughs> you know, that was definitely a factor. Um, but because you didn't just, it wasn't like you, now where you, you know, you were encouraged to speak to your doctor about, um you know your mental health issues just didn't happen and, and you know when i was you know up until i mean the internet didn't come in until you know i, I suppose i mean not really properly until sort of you know the late 90s really did it and so mm. you couldn't just you know i couldn't just google you know anxiety symptoms or depression symptoms or you know eating disorder you know just you just couldn't do that so i remember looking in a you know yellow pages and yet yeah, i am that old that i remember the yellow page and you, you, I kind of look for eating disorder services, but there's just nothing. There's just nothing there. So when you see nothing there, and when there's nothing on TV, or what is on TV is just you know mocking or making you feel more ashamed, and there aren't celebrities coming out and talking about their mental health as there are now, then that is really damaging. Really, 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 really damaging. Um, so you feel like well. You, like I don't know, I probably do need support, but there isn't any support there. So you're just sort of knocking against the kind of brick wall back and forward, back and forward. Yeah, it's kind of it's battling, I suppose, with the societal stigma and then the self stigma as well. Yeah. You know, so it's just like you say, it's so layered. And I think that's really, really interesting, actually. Um, the idea of a double recovery, you know, yeah. the recovery that you mentioned there, the illness itself, and then everything you put yourself through, trying to live with that illness. And I've never really thought about it like that before, but uh, that's like that makes so much so much sense you know so much sense and I like for myself when there's certain anniversaries of you know certain things that have happened over the years you know I've always find myself feeling a bit peculiar and I've talked yeah. about that in in therapy and, and my therapists say that's that's trauma you know yeah. that's like that's something that yeah. needs to be processed as well as, as as being ill and I think that's um that's something that's probably not talked about enough it's certainly something i haven't really given a, a huge amount of, of of thought to but i certainly will from from now on that's fascinating it is it's really it is really interesting I, I think you know there's there's so and there's trauma all along the way and because i think we're at you know we're not at a we're still not at a great point we're at a better point with talking about mental health I, we're not at a better point with talking about mental illness particularly or you know as a society we're sort of happier talking about um, mental health conditions that are more palatable, so depression and anxiety, um, which is ones that I predominantly you know, kind of live with. But we're, we're really bad about not, you know, not discussing psychosis or schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. Um, you know, we're terrible with that stuff. We're really terrible with that stuff. And so, you know, it just, and then when we go and get help from mental health services, they are so stretched and so underfunded and the staff are so stressed that that you know a lot of the time the service that we get is not good enough so and then you've got an additional trauma from that so i i've been in and out of psychiatric hospitals and and, and crisis services and and, and still um, with a community psychiatric team 
But I know that some of my experiences with those services have been really, really, really traumatizing. My time in psychiatric hospital was really traumatizing. You know, it, it sort of kept me alive in the fact that I was in an environment where I, I couldn't kill myself, but there was nothing therapeutic there. And, and there was a lot of trauma within that experience. So also when the places that we're going to get help are inadequate, we've then got another layer of trauma on top of that because the places where we think we should be able to get support and compassion and care are not able to provide that for you know, a myriad of reasons. So it's, it's really difficult. It's still really difficult. You know, we have come a long way, but I think we're also going to look back at this, you know, in 100 years time and go, oh, we were so far off with this, you know, really still pretty much medieval with, with, with mental illness and mental health. So I think we also need time to heal from that trauma about, you know, when we've gone for support and the support's been bad or inadequate. Um, because that is really traumatizing too. So there's lots of layers of trauma going on within our existing trauma around our own mental illness. Yeah, very much so. And I think when the when we're trying to find that help and it takes so much, like the conversation is all around talking and, and very rightly so talking is important, but we never really talk about how hard it is to talk, right? Yeah. So when you finally make that massive step, and it is a massive step, yeah. Um, and the whether it's the response or the support or whatever isn't what you need it to be, it really kind of takes the hope away, doesn't it? And like Absolutely. hope is such a, it is, you know, one of, if not the most important important factors and I, I can completely identify when people kind of get to a place when they put everything into asking for help and don't get that help I can see why people um, give up you know I kind of I get it you know I kind of I under I understand that and I suppose it's I always kind of feel with the conversation with the random mental health conversation I see this a lot on my social media it's a bit of an echo chamber right so I know I'm almost like I'm preaching the, to the converted, you know, and it, it's a bit like, you know, when you bring a book out, James, you know, like the, the people who read the types of books that you write know about the type of books that you write. Right. So and yes, they'll find them helpful and yes, they'll get a lot out of them and yes, they'll enjoy them. But we also like how do we get the person to read your book? who is that person that we've both been, who is sat at home in a bad way and doesn't know what the hell's happening to them. You know, yeah. how, do we, how do we blur those lines between the mental health conversation that's just a bunch of mental health advocates, authors, <laughs> bloggers, you know, all just sat there chatting about it. But really the people whose ears, you know, I try and think of it from my point of view, five years ago when I was really, really poorly, I didn't know what mental health was. I didn't know who these people were who, you know, I didn't know people who wrote the books and did the talks and wrote the blogs and all the stuff I know about yeah. now, you know, and you think, how do we get, those where's the crossover you know how do we blur those lines that's the challenge right yeah that is the challenge and I, and I I think we do that by talking about it to people you know to other people so it, it's a kind of I equate it to sort of another kind of coming out process so I think we have conversations with people in our daily lives beyond those that we already know are kind of advocates and you know um so I always take opportunities when I feel strong enough to talk about my mental illness to cab drivers, to people that I meet on the train, to, you know, whoever it might be, to strangers or to, you know, friends of friends that don't know. And not in a kind of, you know, I'm not going to go buy croissants and suddenly announce that I have depression. But, you know, although I might actually. Um, <laughs> but, but it is that process of, coming out and pushing the boundary and pushing the conversations 
because yeah we can have a conversation you know it's great and hopefully people will find this really useful but you're absolutely right the work the progress work needs to be done outside of this of this bubble and it's the lovely bubble that's a it's a really supportive important bubble um but the progress further on is that people can meet us and go okay yeah he's just like a guy i meet in the supermarket you know he's someone that i go and play football with or he's you know whatever it might be and he has mental health problems too so if, so if he has mental health problems then that will make me reflect on you know have i you know have i had mental health problems and because the amount of times that i do talk about this to people that i don't know very well who then say oh do you know what actually there was a time a few years ago when I was really unwell or my brother is really unwell at the moment or do you know what yeah I did I did there was a time in my teens where I felt really suicidal and it just it opens a gate it opens a gate for that conversation to, to be heard and now we have to make ourselves a bit vulnerable first you know and so that's why I'm saying we need to be you know feeling okay enough to do that but those conversations beyond our immediate sort of support system or, or others within the mental health community for me is the way that we kind of push things on on further and those those sort of conversations those those coming out conversations are very 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 rich they're very rich and and even if we don't have an immediate response of oh me too stuff goes in you know so stuff goes in and people go oh that guy yeah i mean he just looked like a normal guy you know he just looked like a normal guy and he's talked about you know the fact that he's had a suicide attempt or he's in hospital and and he just looks like a normal guy you know because i think there's there's almost there's still a kind of are people with mental health problems going to look like monsters effect you know um there is still that going on so when people can look at us and reflect and go oh, okay so i've met this guy and he's talked about his mental health problems maybe that will give me an opportunity to to reflect um you know and, we, and so i think that's that's how we do it that's that's the way forward yeah yeah and that's lovely that just sounds like such a like a lovely space to live in you know like a more com compassionate world and um it just goes to show right the level of um of stigma around this stuff is when you were talking then i my first thought was like yeah I, i've had those conversations where i've kind of you know just mentioned it and someone said oh you know that like my brother's not been very well and then my first thought has been like god you never would have guessed and it's like well that's the fucking point like that's you know point. like even even with everything that i talk about and everything i've been through my still my first thought was like well i wouldn't have thought it was him but then yeah. like yeah of course that's the whole point that's the whole that, essence of those conversations exactly right? that's that that's the whole point that's the whole point is that we see each other as human to human you know and we haven't got green horns growing out of us and you know I mean, I, I very, I've very really had those conversations where someone hasn't said something in response of me too, absolutely me too, or my brother or my sister or my mum struggling, you know, very, very really. Or sometimes I get silence and I think, well, actually something's going on. <laughs> but even if that's just been, well, you know, people don't know what to say, that's okay because they have heard me saying and being open about my mental health problems. And that that is okay. That's great. You know, I mean, I can't when I'm having a very bad day, I can't do this. But when I feel, you know, when I'm having a good day and I think, yeah, actually, you know, I'm all right. I do take the opportunity to do it. Um, and I can, you know, I can do it a bit more because sometimes people go, well, what do you do for a living? And I go, well, well I, well, I write books and I work in the libraries. And, and then people go, well, what books do you read? So there's what books do you write? So there's a sort of an opener. I think, but sometimes, you know, it's just pays to have that conversation. And so it, it's going to feel a bit uncomfortable 
but the dividends are huge and the dividends are, you know, it's like it spreads, you know, things then spread and spread and spread and spread. And it's through, you know, more visibility and normalizing that, that things, things start to change. Mm, I think a lot of people are, are waiting and you find this particularly with, you know, the conversation around men's mental health. Mm. Um, people are waiting for the right opportunity people are writing for the right space, you know, people are right, almost like, almost like permission, you know? So when you, when you openly say, yeah, this is me, this is what happened. Then that gives that person you're talking to permission to say, yeah, me too. You know, it kind of lets them, lets them know that you're creating that, that space. And I think a lot of times we're talking about mental health. It's not so much the conversation. It's about knowing the words um, and people aren't so scared of speaking. They're more scared of like, being listened to you know and yeah. if, if if we can lead by sport no, not lead by example that just sounds really wanky doesn't it but you know if we can just kind of like be open about these things then it just creates that that space that people can can just fall into did that um did that kind of way of thinking play a part into you to, uh, to start writing about your experience james how did you um how did that come about yeah it it, it did it, it absolutely did so it, it it kind of i wanted to I wanted to be more open. I know that, you know, shame exists in silence, you know. So I knew that, you know, my shame around this stuff would be increased if I didn't talk about it. And and it was really difficult at first because you're really kind of putting yourself out there, you know. Um, But actually the bit in me that felt uncomfortable about it was the bit that needed to come out about it, if that makes sense. So I... The bit going, oh, I'm not sure I want to talk about my suicide attempts and my stay in psychiatric hospital. And but that is the stuff that we need to talk about. So that I kind of there was a sort of dual process going on, going, oh, don't talk about this, James, don't talk about this. And there's another bit going, because you're uncomfortable, that is the bit to talk about, because that will connect with other people's discomfort. And so when we make ourselves vulnerable, then that allows other people to be vulnerable. And it allows that moment of, yeah, oh, my goodness, thank, thank God you're saying that because I'm feeling that too. So when I started to write books, I, I, the feedback that I kept getting was going, oh, God, I'm so pleased you, you see it like that. I'm so pleased you wrote that because I was feeling that too. And I thought it was just me. So I had a lot of, I thought it was just me. I thought it was just me. So I deliberately in the books that I write, I talk about, I try and make them really funny. Um, because I think accessible mental health books are really important and not kind of 600 page books that you can't you can't understand the word but I also talk about vulnerability so I talk about my vulnerability really um, in detail and you know the you know the thoughts in my head that I think are just ridiculous I will write that stuff down because if I think they're ridiculous there will be lots and lots of other people thinking they're ridiculous too and then if we're both thinking they're ridiculous we can go they're not ridiculous this is normal so that was really 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 important to me um and yeah I did have to get over a bit of oh I'm putting myself out there but that gets easier as you as I've written more books then you know it gets much easier to do um but yeah I'm so pleased that I did that because you know so I talk about in in the anxiety book that's just come out so I talk about my anxiety being so so huge that you know I can't I think someone's, um, I think I've locked the toilets at work and I think there's a dead body in there because I think so, you know, and and how I, I'm about to get on a plane to Spain the next day. So what I do is at five o'clock in the morning, I get up and I go into the office to check there isn't a dead body in the toilet. And, you know, 
on the surface of it, it's ridiculous. But, you, you know, anybody with anxiety will have those moments of doing something like that, that you kind of know is ridiculous, but your anxiety is taking over. And so that is really, really crucial because it's, you, we feel, because this is in our minds, you know, all the mental health stuff is in our minds, it can feel incredibly lonely. So when you have, when you're reading something and go, oh my goodness, you know, like he's done that and I've done that, I've done stuff like that too. Thank goodness there's someone telling me that, you know, I can totally see that that is anxiety. That's what anxiety makes you do. And that kind of connection is so powerful, is so powerful. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I kind of want my writing to be all about is talking about those moments and going, yeah, and, and hopefully the reader is going, yeah, I've done that too. I've done a version of that. Oh my God, yeah, I've, I have that thought too. You know, sometimes I go along the road and I want to push somebody in, into the street. You know, I feel that too, you know. And the more we can talk about that stuff, then the more we can understand our condition and how it works and how we can manage it. Mm, I suppose it works on um, works on two levels, you know, because the vulnerability it helps everybody involved in the conversation, doesn't it? Like you say, the more open you are, the more it's almost like I see it as like making peace with some of this stuff, you know. And I had this like buried, and even when I was telling people I was better, I wasn't telling the full story first time round, you know. And I had to learn the hard way that that doesn't work. You can't tell half of it, you know. You can't say I'm working on my mental health and only work on the um you know, on the, on the nice bits of it. I had a, a poet on a few months ago called Bethany Rose, and she was talking about this concept of like rehearsed vulnerability and how we can easily fall into that pattern, right. Of just talking yeah. about, you know, having this spiel that we, that we roll out, but then not really addressing the, addressing the stuff underneath. But so, yeah, that works really good for our own recovery. And then, like you say, that human connection, because struggling with your mental health is, it is a really human experience. And that relatability of someone going oh my god it's not just me that's yeah. um that's massive hey eh? that's really really important I, I, it is it is really important it is and i and i think the sort of the other half of that is i think sometimes when we've gone through a really difficult period and we're sort of recovering kind of what other people want is a really clear narrative of oh he was ill they were ill and now they're better and everything's fine you know it's not, it's not a novel, it's not a story, but people want the narrative of, oh, you were really ill, and now you're absolutely fine. And we, mental health doesn't work like that. So often when I give talks, you know, I will deliberately say, well, I got better, and then I got ill again, and then I got better, and then I got ill again, and I'm still not very well, you know? I'm still managing this, I'm still struggling. It's not, it's not you don't get over the hurdle and then everything's fine. And I think actually, as sort of mental health advocates, we have a responsibility to say when we're not well again, because then that also gives other people the opportunity to go, well, actually, I'm not feeling great either, or I'm back on my antidepressants, or, you know, it's not a, a sense of, you know, the clouds are great, and now it's sunny all the time. That's not how mental health works, because we have triggers, and we have stress, and we have a whole range of stuff. So I think there's lots of things that we can do. I think, you know, it's not a newspaper story of they were very ill, everything is fine, everything is good, you know, because mental health just doesn't work like that. So I will always say, yeah, I, I, I still have periods where I feel suicidal. You know, I was, I had a brief stay in hospital last year, you know, I'm not as ill as I was, but I might be again. I mean, I might be, you know, I have loads more tools to hand, but you know, I might be ill again. It's seriously ill again. Um, 
And that is really important too, because it's about, because then if we are ill again, it sort of develops, it's not the sort of simple narrative of everything is fine. It's like, this is an ongoing process of you trying one thing and then another, and then something else happens and then we feel differently and then we have to try something else. And it, it's kind of, and it's really bloody hard work, you know, as you all know, it's really, really hard work, this stuff. Um, but yeah, I think we do have a duty to go, I am not well again, so that other people can go, I'm not well again either, you know, rather than having to feel like they need to be better. Yeah, yeah, to show the the good times and the and the hard times and the whole the whole picture. Yeah, that yeah, you're right. You're so right. That's really, really important. Yeah. And you kind of um you touched on it there as well, um, with the the humor aspect to your writing. And the, the reason I laughed in particular is when you mentioned the the body in the toilet stories, because I've got a set of notes in front of me. And as I've been reading your book, I've been going through and I've got written in front of me, it says the body in the toilet. And I was thinking, <laughs> if someone just looked at my notes out of context, <laughs> they'd be like, what are you going to ask this guy about? <laughs> but that was um, that particular, um, you know, part of your book really stood out to me because I think we've all um, experienced that moment where you're doing something completely bizarre and you're very aware it's bizarre, but you're still going to bloody do it anyway. You know, yeah. like it's, it's almost uh, I heard it described once. It's like being in the back of a back of an Uber and the sort of the driver starts like taking a different route to what you're expecting. You know, and you're almost like you don't know whether to say anything. So like, he's the driver. <laughs> he must know best. And you just kind of like along for the ride. And it does yeah. feel like that sometimes. eh? It does. It does. Absolutely. You know, our our minds are extraordinary things and they take us to extraordinary places and our and our inner dialogue that we have going on all, all the time is is one of the. It's such a difficult thing to, to, to control and can seem really, really bizarre to us. So when we talk about those bizarre things to other people and they go, yeah, I experience bizarre things too. So, you know, so sometimes, you know, I'll sit on the train and I'll look at someone and I'll go, oh, I wonder, I wonder whether they like broccoli, you know, or I'll go, you know, what do they have for breakfast? Or I'll go, you know, so there are loads of things that our mind is doing or, you know, I'm going along the road and there's someone, Sort of walking near me and I'll go, I'm going to go faster than them, I'm going to beat them. You know, there's so much stuff, bizarre stuff that goes on our brain that isn't actually bizarre, um, that we all feel all the time. And But that is magnified when we have mental illness, you know? Um, and so, yeah, a lot of the anxiety book is, is around me going, look at all these bizarre things that I have done. Look at all these bizarre things that I think, you know? And hopefully that gives people a bit of leeway to go oh okay i feel like that too thank god i feel like that too because that's what we need that's what we need because that helps us to understand anxiety or depression or whatever whatever we're experiencing as a phenomenon as you know something that happens inside us and once we have more awareness of it we can then name it so when we can name something so so i can go so now if i were to go oh i think i, I there's a dead body in the toilet I would be more able to go, okay, this is your anxiety, James. This is, you know, I wouldn't necessarily stop thinking that thought, but I could name it much clearly as this is an anxious thought. Anxiety is making me feel like there is a dead body in the toilet and you've locked it in the toilet. So when we have understanding of it and what and how what the anxious thoughts are making us feel, then we can sort of see it from outside. So we can externalize. I'm a great believer in sort of externalizing stuff personifying and externalizing our illness um, to understand it more. So we can sort of step outside that and go, oh, that's an anxious thought. That's, that's a, a thought from depression, you know, or that's an OCD thought, or that's, you know, that's an eating disorder thought. 
and it's coming from that illness, it's coming from that disease, and we can step back and go, oh, okay, that's what it is, then it makes it much easier to handle because we understand where that thought is coming from. Yeah, and I suppose it's taking that step back and having a look that when you see things out of context, some aspects of struggling with mental health are so bizarre, they are funny, and that allows to, because, you know, there is a real strong... Uh, humor element to your books and you mentioned that before and um i am a i'm a big fan of that because i just think that some these things are so strange they are so strange and i could laugh at myself quite comfortably and some of the things i've said or i've done and um yeah even in the moment as i'm saying something you know in the past there's a part of my brain gone it's a bit much that fella like what, <laughs> you know, what's what's going on here um but it is and, and i do think it's important to be able to find the humor in this and um you mentioned uh, briefly before it makes it so much more accessible doesn't it yeah it, it it does it does i i so kind of yeah there's a couple of reasons why i write with humor a because i find humor really useful with my mental illness so i find you know laughing at my and i do that with my husband a lot we will use humor a lot for me to manage my mental illness um, but I'll do it with myself too. Um, but it also, you know, if you're reading a book about mental illness, then, then which is, you know, let's face it, these are heavy topics. You know, I write about some really heavy topics. You know, I write about bereavement and anxiety and depression, and, you know. So you, you want to be able to read that book, you know, and you need some light relief because these are really, really heavy topics. So I've tried to read other mental health books and I'm just kind of going, well, I don't want to read this because... I'm feeling worse. I know this book is supposed to be helping me, but this is this is really bad. I don't feel good. So that's you know they've got to be accessible. So I introduce a lot of humour because that just makes them easier to read. It, it's as simple as that. It makes it easier to read. But also, yeah, when we can laugh at ourselves, that's a really important tool to manage. You know, so you know when I think that I've when I've knocked somebody accidentally in the supermarket and I think I've given them a heart attack. I know that, A, that's my anxiety going, oh, my God, you killed them. Oh, my God, you killed them. But also I can go, OK, actually, that's really funny, you know, because all you did is slightly nudge them into the yogurt. You didn't you didn't give them a heart attack, you know. And that is that is really, really, really important. Um, so I, I think I don't think the use of humour gets talked about enough within mental health. And, and of course, we need to do it really carefully. But we can we can laugh at ourselves. And that is a technique that can be really, really, really effective, you know, because it just lightens stuff and, and, and it brings us out and lets us look at stuff that, that, that is ridiculous. And, and it's okay that it's ridiculous because we all have that ridiculousness within, within inside us. Yeah, definitely. I suppose it's, um, yeah, to be able to, I suppose it's quite empowering, isn't it? Being able to laugh at, you know, take like some of the worst stuff that's ever happened to you in your life and find a way of of making it humorous. It's almost like bullying the bully, right? It's almost yeah. like, uh, yeah, taking some small amount of control. And, you know, when a lot of the times when people are struggling, uh, you know, you feel like you haven't got control of your life. And being able to kind of, you know, laugh at a bit of it, it is in a strange way, like taking it, even if it's just for two minutes, right, to take a bit of control and, Sometimes two minutes gets you for another day, right? Gets you absolutely. for another night. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. I think it is taking it is taking your power back. It's taking your power back from the illness, you know, and going, actually, I'm going to laugh at you. I'm going to laugh at this because, it, because it's ridiculous. It removes you slightly. It gives you more power. 
it gives you some room to breathe, you know, and you can't always do it, obviously, but, but when you can, oh, it can be a really, really effective technique. You know, it really can. Yeah, I suppose, you know, laughing and um, is like the opposite to being really, really sad. And when you've been sad for a long time, just just a small, tiny little laugh or smile is going to um, is just going to going to break that that cycle, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So in the in the process of sort of becoming a writer, have you always been a creative person, James? Was it were you writing anyway or did you kind of like specifically set out to write these books or how did that all come about? Yeah, I've always written. Yeah, I've always written stuff. So I've always written. Um, I've always written. You know, occasionally the odd terrible poem. Um, <laughs> I mean, tr- truly dreadful stuff. Truly dreadful. Um, or or stories. Or um, I was writing plays for a long time. So I did a. I did the playwriting course at the National Theatre. So I. I um, which can help me a lot with actually writing these these books actually. Um, so I was writing plays for a long time, and then yeah. So I, I I think creativity is really important. When I was incredibly unwell with with depression and, and anxiety, and and really couldn't was in and out of hospital and couldn't function and wasn't working. I wasn't able to read, which was one of the which is one of my big joys in life is is is, is reading. Um, I wasn't able to read because I didn't, my concentration had just disappeared and I couldn't really do anything. Um, but I somehow I was able to write. So I think it was about a process of, you know, expelling and, and getting stuff out. So I couldn't concentrate on reading, but I could write. And I just started to write and write and write and write and, and, and nonsense, you know, really just, just anything to get some stuff out of my brain, just to give me some space in my head um, I kind of think about it really visually that, that kind of, you know, if you sort of picture a head and there's all this stuff going round and round and round in it, and actually it needs to find a way out, you know, it needs to come out. And, and a lot of the time that's done through talking or, but it can be done through lots and lots of different ways, you know. Um, and I did that through writing. And I just started to write and write and write. Um, and then I started to think about, so I would published a book called The Recovery Letters, which is, um, which is a collection of letters from people um, recovering from depression, writing to people that are currently experiencing it. Um, and I set up the, the website around that time, the Recovery Letters website. And that got a lot of traction and, and, and you know, publicity, which was, which was fantastic. Um, and then I actually sort of decided that actually I really wanted to write my story about depression. Um, but I knew from other books that I'd read that I wanted to write it in a quite a specific way. So. I knew that when your depression is really bad, when your anxiety is really bad, trying to read in, you know, a really, really long book is impossible. So I wanted it to be short chapters, short, funny, useful chapters, basically. Um, And also that helped me because I wasn't really able to write, you know, a 400,000 page novel, but I could write about what was going on for me and I could write in short, funny chapters. And, and that worked, that worked really well for me and it worked really well for other people. So I, the one book that really helped me with, with my depression is called Depressive Illness, Curse of the Strong by someone called Dr. Tim Canterbury. And that is a very, very short book on depression. And he also says at the beginning, this book is short because you won't be able to concentrate for very long. And it was absolutely right. And it was the first book that I was able to read because it was so short. Um, and I kind of ran with that idea, really. Um, I mean, my, my, my books are kind of very different from his, but, but, but that, that 
principle of a short accessible book when you're unwell is really important because I kept being given books going, you know, 500 page, you know, books about CBT and will tell me to go and do this exercise and that bit of homework and go into the, you know, all the psychological theory. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't care about this. Just tell me what I need to do. Tell me what I need to do that's going to make me feel better. So I wrote the book that I needed, which was a book telling me what to do to make me feel better. And that's what I do with my books, really, because I think we need tools and techniques. And um, all the time with my illnesses, I want to go, tell me what I can do. You know, tell me what I can do. Can I do this and can I do that? So, yeah, the books are about tools and techniques, ways of thinking, exercise, you know, but not exercises in a homework way, just and, and trying to make them funny and trying to make it going, try this and try this and try this so that you've got 40 ways to try. So, yeah, I and I find the act of writing really, really helpful for me. I find that fantastic. My mental health is always much better when I have a book on the go, which, you know, I have a, another book on the go at the moment, which is great. So I'm always better when I'm in the process of writing because it's just letting out all the stuff that's going on in my head. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I suppose it was um, it must have been a really quite interesting process to kind of think, right, I'm going to you know, I'm going to write down 40 ways. Let's go through my toolbox and kind of, you know, really examine them because a lot of stuff that we do that's good for us, we just kind of do, right? And then you think, right, now I've got to put that into words and then I've got to put it in a way that someone can understand it, you know? And that must have been a, a, a quite an interesting process, James, to kind of pull together years worth of tips and techniques. It was, it, it sort of, and I, 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 suppose I started to notice that I was doing the same thing. To manage my depression so I started to realize that I was talking back to my depression or I started to realize that I was doing the opposite of what depression tells me to do or that I was you know imagining a depression so I imagined depression as a cookie so you know and I was having this image of a cookie and I was beating the cookie around the head and I was doing all these things and going oh okay I, have, I keep repeating the same stuff and I keep repeating the same stuff because it works so I started I literally on my phone I just started to write down all the things that I did you know um, and they came to about, you know, it instantly came to about 35. And I'm like, oh my God, I do all these things all the time. And that had been through, you know, certainly in the year that I've been incredibly well, but, but essentially years and years and years and years of, of managing depression and anxiety. So, yeah, it was kind of revelatory, really, because I, I, I realised that I was repeating stuff. And, yeah, when I started to write it down, I was like, OK, so this is this is kind of what I'm doing. And what's been lovely is that other people have gone, yeah, those those things that you said for me to use have been useful too. You know, it's lovely. Yeah, definitely. I certainly found that from from reading your book. You know, there was stuff there and I thought, I've never thought about it like that. Or, you know, oh yeah, I do that, but I've not really thought about it in those in those terms, you know. And I, I did jot, jot a couple of them down for this because a few of them really jumped out. And um, in particular, things that were really relevant to, I find with these conversations that I have, James, that certain things just keep coming back up and up and up and they come out in different ways and they're from different people who are doing like different things. But you start to see these patterns, you know, and you start to think like that, that this is something that maybe should be talked about a little bit more. or This should be something that is, could really help more people if they could could think about it. Um, but the big one for me that jumped out is one of the early chapters. And it, you write about um, picking your battles and about how, um, you know, like making certain 
you know, choices maybe regarding work and not taking things on allows you to have a much more meaningful life and then actually deal with some of the more important stuff. And I thought that was, you know, that's one I read and I was like, yeah, I need to, I'd like to apply this lens to certain aspects of my life. You know, I thought that was a really, a really good one. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. So for me with, with both depression and anxiety, yeah, you do have to pick your battles. You have to kind of, you know, so I know that I'm going to live with these conditions. I know that I'm going to live with these conditions and I, and I have to kind of go, well, actually how I knew that I had to kind of simplify my life to manage them. So I wasn't able to go back and, and, you know, I was working in, 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 in social care and doing training and stuff. And I knew I couldn't go back to that because I wouldn't be able to manage it. So yeah, I had to make choices around prioritizing my mental health. Um, and so I do, you know, I write and I work in a library and, and, I, and that's sort of equally sort of the two halves of my week. But I have a job that doesn't stress me out, that I like. So I'm not coming home going, oh, God, I need to think about that. And I need to do that. And I need to do that. I just really enjoy it. You know, it's great. And then I write or then I give talks and I love that. And so there are so many other stresses in life that are going to happen. You know, people are going to die and we might have relationships that break up or, you know, things that happen. Life is so difficult anyway. Let's not, when we have anxiety, depression, let's not make it more difficult by being in jobs or occupations or relationships that are going to make life even more difficult than it is already. So yeah, you have to, for me, I, I had to make decisions around, for me to kind of carry on and live with some meaning, I need to radically change what, what I'm doing with my life. Um, and that's not easy, you know, and it's not easy if you have six kids and three guinea pigs, you know, it's not, that's really difficult. Um, but actually, I think when we prioritise our mental health and give, you know, so I have much more room and time available now to manage my mental health. Um, and that's, and that's what needs to happen for me to keep, to keep going. Okay? Um, so yeah, that is, yeah, that was really important. Yeah, sure. So how does, um, I'm just curious to know, really, like with anxiety and depression, they kind of manifest, don't they, for different people in all different ways. They do go very much hand in hand. Mm. And for yourself and your own experience, how does so like one, you know, for want of a better expression, how does one complement the other? You know, how do they, how do they feed, how do they feed each other for, for you? How does that, that manifest for you? It kind of depends, actually. So, so sometimes, sometimes they'll be joined together but usually not actually. Normally um, my anxiety is, is triggered by a fear of hurting people, of killing people, um, you know, just light stuff really. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you know, responsibility, um, having done something wrong, making a mistake. Um, so normally mine, so I, I think lots of us live with those two things. They kind of, they chum around together, but they are, for me, they come at different times normally, normally. So if I'm having a big slump with my depression, um, I will get anxious about the fact that, that, that maybe I'm gonna be off work and then, and then I'll start to catastrophize. So if I'm in with my depression, I'm off work and then what if I accumulate so much sick leave that, that I get sacked and then I'm not going to have any money and my husband's going to have to support me, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it does interplay a bit. 
but sometimes I will just have a complete, you know, anxiety episode where it's just anxiety. So there are, there's interplay, there's definitely interplay. But I suppose I, because I'm much more aware of the different ways that they talk to me, those different illnesses talk to me, I can sort of separate them out a lot and go, oh, that's the depression voice and that's the anxiety voice. Um, I'm not whether I'm, I don't know why I'm answering your question, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, very much so. Yeah, very much. I think it's always interesting because like uh, something that I experienced was I had a very stereotypical view of anxiety of what I thought it was and that I didn't think I was, a, I didn't think I had anxiety, you know, I just thought I was like, I was busy and like to get stuff done and a little bit obsessive, but then it was only like once I started to learn about it and you, when I'd be depressed and I was always like looking for answers, like, why, why am I depressed? Like, you know, there's, no, there's been no trauma in my life. There's been no, mm. you know, like I'm very privileged and I, I could never, never figure it out because I didn't think of anxiety as a factor. Whereas like for me, anxiety tends to, I tend to channel it. I don't get like, I tend to, you know, I'm very obsessive about stuff and I'll, mm. I'll take something that's supposed to be fun and I'll ride it to death till it's not fun anymore. Mm. And, um, but those it just completely empties my tank. And then that leaves me very, very prone to, to get poorly in, in other ways. And I think that like everyone has their own, you know, these things manifest in different ways. And I always think that's an important conversation to have because they're the ones where people think, well, that, that's not a bit of me. And that, that is a bit of me. And, it, you know, we, you can have any version of these things you want, right? And they every oh, yeah. for every different human being, there's a different, whatever versions there are, they're all available, I think. Uh, absolutely. And there are exactly that. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of know what mine are, you know, so, you know, I'm sure I talk about the book. So, you know, yeah, mine are about, you know, people dying, killing people, making mistakes, being sacked, you know, um, but for other, so for other, there could be a whole range of stuff for other people, you know, it is, it is, and some of it is based on experiences that we've had in the past, or it may not be, you know, it may not be, you know, so it could be trauma informed by something, by something that's happened. But it may not be, it might just be, a, you know, a culmination of things, you know, you know, I have anxiety around, you know, you know catching diseases, you know, I always worry about that as well, you know, so that sort of borders on with, I have kind of mild OCD is probably, but obviously OCD and anxiety are very, very, very closely linked. Um, you know, those two definitely chum around to each other. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> yeah, and that's something that's also not understood, right? So people think that OCD is something that OCD isn't, you know, and it's yeah. almost become a an adjective to, you know, describe liking things nice, which of course it's not that at all, but it is an anxiety-related illness, isn't it? You know, and absolutely. Um, yeah, it's just very much um very much misunderstood. I suppose, you know, like understanding our versions of these things helps with acceptance and I'm tying it in here because um, like acceptance and accepting change is something that um, really jumped out to me from your, your book when I was going through it. And just, yeah. you know, does that, that help you a lot, James, to just kind of accept that, yeah, it is what it is sometimes, right? Absolutely. Accepting change is one of the most effective things that I think I've done with um, both my anxiety and my depression. Um, so with anxiety, you know, you kind of want things to stay as they are because you're worried about, you're kind of worried about change. So I kind of go, I, want, I don't want anyone to die. I don't want anyone to leave. I don't want to, you know, worried about that. Um, so accepting that change is going to, going to happen is part of kind of going, okay, I can't control everything. I cannot control everything. 
I went through many years of trying to control everything. And it just doesn't bloody work. You know, it just does, doesn't work. It's hard work, right? It it's really, exhausted. Really, really hard work. Really hard work. And I can't control my neighbours being noisy. And I can't control the trains that are not arriving on time, so I'm late for work. I can't control that. All I can control is, is myself to a degree. I can control my choices. To, you know. um, and then in relation to depression, it sort of works somehow in the opposite way actually for me so with depression you think um that your depression will never get better that it's always going to be horrendous that you are always going to feel like that and so with my depression i use the concept of change to go, go yeah but things change all the time james so why should your depression be any different so it gives me hope so i use it in different ways with depression and with anxiety if that makes sense um, but the concept as a whole is just really useful. So yeah, I, I keep reminding myself about change and I use it in different ways depending on whether I'm feeling depressed or whether I'm feeling anxious. Um, yeah, it's a very, very, very useful, useful tool. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I was like for me, as soon as I learned a little bit of acceptance, my approach was always, you know, face it head on. You know, I'd try and like, you know, I've said in the past, like headlock it, you know, it was trying to like fight it. And if I was going to meditate, I was going to like meditate within an inch of my life, you know, and it was like, I really yeah. tried to force everything. As soon as I just went, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to go with this and almost kind of let it play out to a point where then I could then start to, you know, do some of these things. And yeah, I think that's really just that acceptance and, you know. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I accept that, you know, I'm going to be living with depression and anxiety and mild OCD and, and remnants of eating disorders. You know, that is just going to be around. And that it sort of gives you, when I started to accept that things, it kind of gives you a freedom because a bit like you, so I, I did a six week mindfulness meditation course. And it's like, and I will be the best person meditating in this room. I will meditate my arse off. And I'm going to beat everybody at the meditation, you know. And then you kind of go, "Oh, I'm not really sure that's what meditation is <laughs> really about." Well, you know, I, I I was then sort of determined to get rid of depression. I'm going to get rid of it. I am going to be the person that gets rid of depression, and I'm going to work really, really hard to get rid of it. And it, again, it doesn't it doesn't work. And the acceptance thing does work. You know, it it does release you from the confines of. of having to do some kind of success around your mental health so i yeah that's so useful when i when i sort of accepted that these things were going to be with me and i didn't have to try and get rid of them that was immensely helpful but that that sort of perfectionist stuff is a big part of my anxiety and about control and a big part of my ocd yeah um and it does, it just sort of releases you. It does kind of release you. Yeah, it gives you that that freedom, I suppose. And, uh, you know, and hope feeds into that and knowing that things are going to be yeah. okay. And, you know, I think it's, you know, it's just knowing that you can you can live with these things and still have a really nice life. And sometimes yeah. that life is, is, is hard, you know, and sometimes it's hard and you're not really sure why it is. But, it, yeah, you can still be, everything can be really good as well, can't it? You know, you can, you can. It, it, it's, it's important. So I spend a lot of the time when I have moments of joy. I think, you know, joy and happiness for me are very, very, very different things. And actually, and more so these days, I am much more interested in joy. 
than happiness because my happiness is just all over the place. I mean, it's just, you know, up and down, you know. But when I have moments of joy, that is the real nourishing, sustaining stuff in terms of my mental health. And I write it down on my phone. So, you know, I've got my phone here. I have a list of, of moments of joy, be it having the most fantastic lemon ice cream in Milan or kind of, I was in Iceland a, a few days ago and seeing the most magnificent mountains and snow or, you know, seeing a dog walk along the road with like a massive stick in its mouth. Yeah. Though any kind of those moments of joy for me are really important. And I think that's even more important with depression and anxiety than, than trying to get a sort of all round everyday happiness, because that doesn't happen for most of us, you know, um, because our moves just go up and down and up and down. But joy is something that I think we should actively try and seek out and remember and recall because that's where the sort of meaningful stuff and our ability to carry on and have hope. I think that's really where it lives. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose those bigger things like kind of almost remind us of our, of our place in the world as well, you know? So yeah. like remind, because depression especially can be so all, all consuming, you know, it made me really selfish, really, really selfish. And, you know, I thought it was all, everything was all about me for a long, long time. Um, but when we have those bigger moments, those moments that are bigger the, than us, you know, seeing these amazing things in Iceland, catching an incredible sunset, it just kind of reminds you, doesn't it, of your, your place in amongst this, this massive open world. And yeah, it kind of gives you that little, little allows you to step back from it and see some of the, see the wood for the trees, you know, for uh, one of the less stereotyped <laughs> expression. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it does. It does. It, it, for me, it gives me nourishment, kind of gives me a moment of, oh, okay, so this is, this is, this is what life's about. This is what life's about. Life is about those kind of, you know, lovely, lovely moments, you know, and, and those moments could be, can be absolutely anything, you know, there could be, you know, you're buying some shopping and you have just a really nice exchange with the, you know, the supermarket cashier, you know, it can be as simple as that, or, you know, you're helping someone get on the bus or, you know, wherever it can be, but, um it can be easy to forget those moments you know and because because depression and anxiety and other mental illnesses are so strong you know they're really powerful buggers you know they really are you know they're like big giant ogres you know looming over us and one of the ways that we tackle them is is with hope and is with joy you know that's that's part of the antidote to those illnesses is is those things so we have to fire back we have to fire back with hope and joy you know and that's some of the things that helps, you know, knock them down a bit. Yeah, sure. There's a lot of research, isn't there, around having like a, a gratitude practice and how we can almost um, like retrain our brains to, to seek out these positives, you know, like because you, you, you go to the shop and you have a really nice moment with the person behind the counter and like, we'll just go, oh, that was nice. And then just skip on into life. But if you had like a negative encounter with that same person behind the counter, you still be thinking about that three weeks later, you know, and yeah. what, we don't pay the, the good stuff um you know as much mind as we pay the the bad stuff and i suppose that's a, a habit that we can um that we can that we can work on yeah yeah and i think i think for me it's not as as you know because i think there's there's quite a lot of for me quite toxic positivity around so I, I i'm always really careful about going it's not just about going just notice the flowers notice the lovely flowers all the time and notice you know it's not it's not i don't think it's about that because because when sometimes when I notice the flowers, I want to rip them up and into shreds and eat them. You know, um, it's about noticing, you know, the moments that bring me joy and meaning. You know, 
and remembering those so but you know you have to work you have to keep working it so you know i was i was in iceland and, and there was somebody on the coach i was I'm not wearing a mark and i was like i was really angry i was like oh my god i can't believe you know getting more wound up and more wound up and i have to be really careful so and it was starting to take over the fact that i was in iceland seeing these most fantastic things you know so I, I deliberately then sat and I got back to my hotel and I wrote down all the amazing things that I'd seen that day. And, and it just balances it out. And we have to do that even more when we have mental illness. We have to kind of counteract and counteract. And it wasn't, it's not, for me, it's not about going, just think positively because I, I just, you know, a lot of that kind of positive talk i don't think i don't think works i think what we need to attach to is meaning things that are meaningful for us and things that are joyful for us um and keep fighting with those illnesses that are trying to drag us down you know it's, yeah. it's kind of how i see it yeah very much so yeah i think that's a lovely um a lovely way of looking at it yeah i've got a couple of um, other things I just wanted to touch on quickly, James. I'm a bit conscious of your time. We've been chatting. It's gone in a blink of an eye. This, uh, it has. No, yeah, no, no. this last. Yeah, this, this is lovely. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did want to touch on the recovery letters because yeah. that sounds like so, even like the name of that project just sounds lovely. Um, was that you know how did that sort of come about? Did the website come first, or how did um, how did that come to be? Yeah. So it was when I I was in the psychiatric hospital and. Um, and really no one up to that point had talked to me about, about the possibility of getting better. So until there was one, I was having, just before I went to psychiatric hospital, actually, I was having daily visits from a crisis team. And um, one of the student sort of mental health nurses sort of turned into, in the doorway and said to me, James, you know, you can recover from depression. And I was like, oh, okay. No one, no one said that to me at all. And no one had talked to me about hope, you know, or about change or about, you know. And so I sat, I was sat in my um, room in psychiatric hospital and I thought, Do you know what, if I'm gonna try and get through this, I need to hear about other people's stories of recovery and how they've managed it. So I kind of went to the psychiatrist and said, you know, where can I go to hear about other people's stories? You know, what, you know, where, where can I go to hear about that? And he was like, oh, I don't, I don't think there isn't a thing. And, and I kind of was trying to say, look, I really need to hear about other people's experiences. And so I thought, actually, well, if I can't find it, then maybe I need to do it. So when I got home, I wrote a letter um, from me to other people about, you know, how I was recovering. And I posted it into a, into it was a blog at that point. And I went onto Twitter and asked other people to write letters. And then it just it blew up like there was no tomorrow, which was amazing. So um, it, it's, oh, we now have, how many letters do we have? Oh, crikey, about, you know, 300 maybe. Wow. Um, letters, I mean, huge, huge amounts. And I, I sort of rotate them. Um, and it took off massively. So yeah, I, I, I did a lot of publicity. It was on Radio 4 a few times and yeah, various other places. It took off hugely. And um, it's just, for me, it's just a really beautiful thing because it's other people that are recovering from depression, writing to other people who are currently suffering. And I do use the word suffering. I was, I was, I was told off a few years ago for using the word suffering around depression, going, oh, that's, that's, that's just really negative. And I was kind of going, no, no, I, I am, when I am 
depression, I am suffering. And I'm going to use that word because, you know, it's not a picnic in the meadow. It is bloody awful. You know, yeah, so I'm, not sure what the, I'm not sure what the alternative. I know. Be. I'm not sure uh, how we can put a positive spin on it. Yeah, how are we spinning? You know, I, I, I got a bit cross, as you can imagine. So <laughs> um, it is about, you know, it's about pain. It is about suffering. Um, and what the letters do is that they, they you know, they don't disguise how, how awful depression is, but they also say that there's hope. And they give examples of how people have been at their lowest points and now things are a bit better. And it's 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 just about providing hope. And it's just a beautiful thing because, you know, no one's paid, no one pays for these letters. You know, I just manage the website. And it's provided such incredible hope for people. Um, it's been extraordinary. And actually, the letter writers get as much out of it as the letter readers. And I love that. You know, that's for me, that's proper, full-on, good peer support stuff. You know? And and then I got a book contract for that book, which was which was amazing. And that book took took off, and it's on the um, reading well list as part of the reading agency's mental health scheme. And it's being translated in lots of different languages and stuff. Um, and yeah, I, it's just a really beautiful concept that came into my head um, when I was in psychiatric hospital, and that has just run and run and run, and it's just wonderful and and you know i love the fact you know i get emails you know pretty much every week from people all over the world i mean really all over the world it's just so humbling really people saying you know i i go and look at the letters at four o'clock in the morning when i'm awake and i can't sleep because my depression's so bad and i just read a letter and it just gives me some hope and and i do that too so i have letters that i go to when my depression's really bad and um and i'll read them and, I, and it just reminds me that what I, when I'm stuck in my depression, things can get better. You know, they can get better. Um, and it isn't, you know, a linear, you know, narrative as we were talking about earlier. They do get worse and then better and then worse again and better. But that, that there is hope, you know, and I think we don't talk enough about hope. We, we really don't talk enough about hope. Um, and, and we need that. We absolutely need that. So, yeah, yeah it's something I'm, I'm very, very proud of. Yeah, yeah, that's such a wonderful concept. And, you know, coming from from that place and, um, you know, it kind of it just touches on everything we've talked about today, you know, creativity, writing stuff down, getting out your head, connecting with other people, being vulnerable. It's just, um, yeah, it's just really, really, uh, really, really lovely, mate. Yeah, that's, um, that's fantastic. And I've got one more thing, James, that I wanted to, yeah. um, to ask you about, mate. And I've, I've, I was thinking, oh, shall I ask how we doing for time? I thought, you know what, I've got to, I need to know, right? So in the front of your book, it mentions that you and your husband live in Brighton, yeah. and that you live with your um, emotionally damaged cat. And I need, <laughs> I need to ask about this cat, mate. What's, yeah. um, what's going on with your poor cat? <laughs> he's, he's a very emotionally damaged. So he is, uh, so he, when I, interesting, the, the sort of year when I was off really ill and I couldn't, I wasn't able to work and this cat appeared, I was, it was summertime and this cat appeared on my sofa. I was sat down and this cat just so it came in through the, uh, the kitchen door and I was like, what are you, what, what the hell's going on? And I chased it off and I was like, what the hell was that about? And then he kept appearing in my garden and I was like, what is going on here? And I mean, looked really ill, really, really ill. And um, so I started to, I gave him a bit of food and, and then I started to try and find his owner because I was like, well, I can't keep feeding this cat if he's, you know, if he's owned by something. Put posters up everywhere, you know, internet stuff. No one claimed this cat, no one claimed this cat, no one claimed this cat. And um, then we went away, we went away for my 40th and uh, we came back and he was on the doorstep just freaking out. And then he, 
he stayed on our bed for like 24 hours. And then we took him to the vet. And, and I thought he was about, I thought he was really old, you know. I, I kind of thought, oh, you know, he'll have a couple of years of him and we'll do that. And my husband hates cats. So it was, it was like, <laughs> slightly problematic. He doesn't hate this cat now, but, but at the time he was like, I don't want a cat. And I was like, it's fine. He's about to die. It's all all right. He's about to die. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> and he was like, oh, okay. And so we took him to the vet and, they, and I was like, oh, you know, he wasn't chipped or anything. And I said, how old is he? And they were like, oh, he's about six months. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and he's been abandoned. Yeah. So the story, the story that we found out is that he lived in a, a house a few, a, a few houses down on the same street and um, someone had just abandoned him. Um, she had been told that he was bad luck and um, she had abandoned him. Yeah. Horrendous. Wow. So he's, oh, he's, he's a troubled cat. So obviously with that kind of, you know, start to life. Um, so he's very anxious and he needs a lot of attention. And um, yeah, he does, everything is pretty much informed by his trauma, you know, which is pretty much the same for me, actually. I was gonna say, it sounds relatable, yeah. It, very, very yeah. relatable. So yeah, we have a lot in common with my, my cat and I. Um, <laughs> and he, yeah, he's great. You know, animals are a huge comfort, you know, a huge comfort. They can do a lot of good things. Um, so yeah, that is, that's the story of my emotionally damaged cat. And he's, he's quite a character. He goes, my husband takes him for walks. He, they sort of walk around the block in the middle of the night and stuff. He's quite, he's sort of quite well known. Oh, um, mate. But yeah, he's, he's, he's great. And he's, he's, he's as screwed up as I am. And I, and I like that. Oh, mate. Yeah. That's lovely. It sounds like you, you found each other when you, you both most needed it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it did indeed. Absolutely. There you go. What a wonderful way to wrap up. I'm so <laughs> glad I asked that, that question, mate. Oh, James, I've enjoyed that immensely, mate. That was brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today, mate. That was absolutely lovely. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you, Tom. I've loved it too. Right, cheers, mate. mental podcast please like and subscribe the space star